Welcome to episode five of Midwife in America. Listen to Black Women. There are folks who have known me across the years who are kind of still a little uncomfortable because they may feel like, God, you're always talking about race. But it's the, it's the key. It's the key to what's going on. I realize not everybody is as comfortable as I am to have those conversations. In today's episode, we have this conversation about racism and its impact on maternal health outcomes for African-American women. I'm going to create a shirt. It's going to say hashtag listen to black women because we know what we need to do to help ourselves. I'm Angie Chisholm. I'm Kate Bowen. I'm Emily Yeast. And I'm Katie Robbins. We are Midwifey in America, a new podcast to reimagine maternity care and other issues affecting women. Hi, everyone. This is Emily Yeast. I would like to welcome you to the newest episode of Midwifey in America. Late last year, I had the pleasure of speaking with midwife extraordinaire Ebony Marcel by phone. I am Ebony Marcel. I am the director of midwifery for Family Health and Birth Center Community of Hope in Washington, D.C. And I've been a midwife for almost 11 years, and I love it like crazy. In addition to her position as director of midwifery, Ebony is also adjunct faculty for Georgetown's midwifery program and sits on the board of the March for Moms organization. Recently, Ebony was appointed to Washington, D.C.'s new Maternal Mortality Review Committee, as D.C. joins the call for states to investigate our nation's abhorrent maternal mortality rate. Ebony has held leadership positions in our national organization, the American College of Nurse Midwives, or ACNM. In 2014, she won ACNM's prestigious Kitty Ernst Award. This award, fondly known as the Young Whippersnapper Award, is to recognize a midwife who has been certified for less than 10 years and has demonstrated innovative and creative work in midwifery. I will tell you the day I caught my first baby, I cried. And I knew that midwifery was exactly what I was supposed to do. And, you know, 11 years later, it still brings me immense joy to catch babies and to teach a woman about her body and evaluate my brand new baby that I caught. So it still makes me super happy. And the other element now is I've added the whole social justice piece and activism and advocacy. So I'm basically doing my dream job. I was raised in Orange County, California, but we struggled. And my mom was a single mom. And when we had to go to be evaluated, you know, without insurance, I remember the providers that treated us really crappy because they knew we were poor and we were on welfare. And I remember providers that treated us really well. I really aimed towards making sure that if I had the opportunity, I was going to be that provider that no matter her social economic background, I was going to take good care of her. I had a plan to get a PhD in developmental psych and was really focused on autism and Asperger's. I kind of put in the back of my brain my love for pregnancy and babies when I went to undergrad, just kind of focused on more of a serious career. 
um, and then went for just a GYN exam to talk about some birth control options. And that was the visit that led me towards midwifery. Um, I walked into the room. She had me not take off my clothes, which usually you're on the table and a gown, like waiting for the provider. And then just did such a detailed history um, and asked me questions that nobody had ever asked me and a GYN exam. I said, why was this so different than any other time I've had an annual exam? And she said, oh, because I'm a midwife. And I was like, what's a midwife? And then she basically, in a nutshell, said it's about women empowerment, health literacy. It's beyond birth. It's about taking care of the whole woman. And I was hooked. And so I scared a lot of friends and family because I basically told my PhD program I wasn't coming and then took prereqs for three years, went to nursing school, a year out of nursing school, applied to midwifery school. Altogether, I think it took me like seven years to become a midwife. My thesis in grad school and midwifery school, it was called, get ready for it, Stress from the Womb. I remember my lovely, lovely advisor, when I told her I wanted to look at infant mortality amongst African-Americans, she just was like, are you sure? This is a lot of material. It's pretty intense. And I was like, oh yeah, it'll be fine. It's totally fine. It was a lot. It was a lot. I, I was completely unprepared for the decades of research, looking at every simple, you know, solution that I could have thought of on the top of my head. Oh, it's socioeconomic. It's lack of care, a lack of education, and not realizing that it was such a deep and layered issue. But it, that's what basically started to pull me in. In the United States, we have a maternal health crisis on our hands as maternal mortality rates rise while they decline in much of the rest of the world. And in a country with the highest maternal mortality rate in the developed world, black women are three to four times more likely to die from pregnancy-related complications than white mothers. And black infants are more than twice as likely to die than white infants. The preterm birth rate for white women is one in 10, but for African-American women, it's one in six. What Ebony discovered in grad school was emerging research showing that these disparities persist even after controlling for socioeconomic factors like education and income. To put it another way, even when you take into account something like education, which has been proven to affect the risk of preterm birth, the disparity remains. A black, college-educated woman is more likely to give birth prematurely than a white woman with just a high school degree. What can explain this disparity? The simple answer to the complicated question is racism. I really, really loved Michael Liu's life course space perspective, which he's saying that we're never going to fix birth outcomes until we get to the roots. So basically, it doesn't matter, you know, how many nice things we might try to add when caring for prenatal women, but it really starts with a young girl in elementary school. I really, at that time, didn't understand how this circles around systematic and institutionalized racism and years of generational stress 
I really couldn't even appreciate it at that level. Um, Because when you talk about it that way, we got to have the hard conversations about race and racism in this country. You know, we talk about chronic stress. Um, There's a really old article by, I think it's McEwen, with allostatic load and how a lot of times women of color are in chronic fight or flight with high levels of cortisol. Um, And so with those high levels of cortisol, you're developing a baby who has to develop all of their entire vascular system during the pregnancy. You're making up another human that is already starting off his journey affected. When we are stressed, our body releases the hormone cortisol to respond to the stressful event. And in life or death situations, this hormonal cascade can allow us to activate that fight or flight response. But if someone is constantly under stress, meaning there are chronically elevated levels of cortisol in the body, this can lead to illness. So the theory of allostasis is that our body is constantly trying to maintain a balance. McEwen's concept of allostatic load is that the elevated levels of cortisol cause a persistent activation of the body systems as it tries to maintain this balance. The social environment has a cumulative impact on physical and mental health and the progression of disease. We aren't going to be able to address these healthcare disparities until we can reduce the allostatic load carried by African-American women. I left the birth center for the first time in 2010 to pursue a position, um, a position of leadership. When I was at my new location, again, predominantly Medicaid, predominantly underserved women, and I really started to develop kind of like my own niche and, and thoughts on how underserved Black women should be taken care of. One of my best examples, and I always give this when I'm teaching um, at Georgetown, I always kind of say, you know, I had a colleague who I love dearly to this day, um, but we're in this clinic and she's, you know, talking to the patients about how they need to eat kale and lentils. And I said, it's, it's not going to work because the women that you're taking care of, first of all, you have to understand that in the African-American household, usually one person controls the kitchen. So you have to first find out who's the person that's cooking. And then, you know, when we talk about, you know, all the food she should get, like, what if she lives in a food desert where the grocery stores aren't, you know, they don't have good kale or lentils or all the, you know, kombucha and all the awesome things you might think she should drink or she should eat. Um, And it was it was through those years that I started to really realize that, hey, I'm really good at finding a way to care for Black women and make sure that it's culturally aware and create a space for them to get prenatal care that feels comfortable. Ebony has a long relationship with the Community of Hope Family Health and Birth Center. She was at the Birth Center as a volunteer during nursing school and then worked there for her first job after midwifery school. She left for several years in 2010 and then was drawn back, as you are about to hear. I feel like the women in in this particular ward, like when you are their midwife, you are theirs forever. And so I caught this woman's baby in 2009, and here we are, it's 2014. And um, at this point, the birth center had stopped doing births. 
and we're just kind of rooting patients to deliver at whatever hospital. And if they came to this particular hospital, that's where I was practicing with gig number two. And so I came on and I was getting report from the midwife and she said, yeah, this is a midwife from the birth center. I'm a patient from the birth center. And I can tell you that I have a sick memory for names and birth stats. And um, I said, oh, that's so-and-so. I was like, I, I know I caught her first baby. I was like, I wonder if she'll remember me. And she said, oh, absolutely. She remembers you. She's waiting for you. And I was like, what? So, you know, she's like, she's an induction for post-dates. She's long closed and high. She hasn't had a baby now in six years. So I'm just kind of like, you know, I already am like, this is not going to happen on my 12-hour shift. So I like walk in the room and she's like, oh, Miss Ebony, I'm so happy to see you. I wish you would come back to the birth center. I'm so happy you're here. You're going to catch my next baby. And I'm like, you know, sure, sure. But I'm like, listen, you're an induction. You're closed. You know, we're starting this off at eight o'clock. And I said, baby, I'm an old midwife. I go home on time now. I don't stay late. And so I said, you know, we'll do our best. But I was like, it'll be fine. But I'm going home at eight o'clock. And damn it, did I catch that baby at 812. And he looked at me and was like, I told you you were going to catch my baby. I knew then I needed to apply for the job. She was the reason that I decided to apply for the job for the director position at the birth center. And um, when they interviewed me, I said, listen, if you're going to give me this job, you got to let me do all the things I want to do. And you have to trust me and know that some of the things that I might want to do are not really, you know, textbook or they might not be completely policy driven, but you have to trust me and know I know what I can do to rebuild and restore this birth center. I really developed more of a voice and having the conversation about racism in healthcare, in midwifery, and I got more comfortable having harder conversations. And so I, I know there's there are folks who have known me across the years who are kind of still a little uncomfortable because they may feel like, God, you're always talking about race, but it's the, it's the key. It's the key to what's going on. And I realized through my mentors and, you know, other midwives that not everybody is as comfortable as I am to have those conversations. Not everybody is able to maybe create the space or to help other people understand. And a fire just got sparked inside of me being at this birth center, um, being an FQHC and having the opportunity to create. I just ran with it. The Family Health and Birth Center is part of a large federally qualified health center, Community of Hope. The birth center was founded in 2000 by midwife Ruth Lubick, who received a MacArthur Fellowship to fund what was then called the DC Developing Families Center founded in response to the growing healthcare disparities in Washington. In fact, the national disparities quoted earlier become more pronounced the closer we zoom in on Washington, D.C. As a city, D.C. has the highest infant mortality rate of any capital city in the developed world, and the maternal mortality rate in D.C. is twice as high as our national average. As a side note, in compounding the crisis, 
Several hospital maternity units in D.C. have recently closed, creating what journalists and policymakers are referring to as a maternity desert. D.C. is broken into eight wards. In Ward 8, the city's poorest ward, infants are 10 times more likely to die than those in Ward 3, Washington's wealthiest ward. The birth center is located in Ward 5 and also has a prenatal clinic in Ward 8. At the time of Ebony's hire in 2015, the birth center itself was actually closed and the practice was seeing very few prenatal patients. As I was trying to rebuild this service, I want you to understand that the birth center had been closed for two years and the majority of prenatal patients had gone elsewhere. And so when I came back, one thing that I recognized off the break was that the environment was very different. The space was not what it was when I had been there five years ago. And that's what some of the patients that I would interact with, you know, outside of the birth center would kind of talk about. One of the first things that I did was work on a policy for late patients. You have a lot of providers who really kind of don't want to see late patients. They just don't. They kind of feel like, hey, you had a scheduled time. You should have shown up. We gave you this grace period and you should have come. But I kind of always argue that we need to see late patients, especially working with a population that does not have transportation and also has housing dynamics that really affect their ability to function in life. It was really important to me that we will always see late babies and late prenatal patients. I got a lot of pushback, <laughs> of course, but over time, it's just the understanding. And what I found from it, just kind of standing this ground of, listen, th this is the women that we're taking care of. They're late. They're chronically late. CP time, color people time, but we still need to see them. And what I learned was, I would hear women say, no matter how late I am, my midwife always sees me. And like, that means so much to me. That's important to me. And then sometimes when we would see that super late patient, what you thought might've been going on wasn't even half of what was going on at home and the drama right. from things like, yeah, like I was on the way here, but my aunt who's going to keep my kid couldn't show. And then my uncle, who might stay with us sometimes, uses drugs and I can't leave my babies with him. Or even as simple as like, hey, I was trying to get here, but I had a job interview and I was leaving Northwest and I was trying to take public transportation and it was taking forever to get by. Or even things like, I'm just sad, undiagnosed and undertreated depression and chronic stress. Like I just couldn't get out of the bed and... You know, it was having the opportunity to really hone on caring for these women in a different way. It just, it's, it's my passion now. Other things that I really tried to work on is um, I hired predominantly midwives of color and I think it makes a huge difference we had an office on the other side of town that we just could not really build a prenatal population to come. And I would like go to that office and have like three patients for the day. And I would watch women with big bellies walking by. And it took everything in me not to like walk outside and be like a crazy person. Hey, where are you getting prenatal care? I see you have a belly. So I realized that was not a good decision. 
But what I figured out was the way that Black families work, it's by word of mouth. And so I started, I had a, I have a very, very vivacious and um, funny midwife who is an incredible facilitator for centering. I started keeping her there regularly, one day a week. And my God, they grew. And they started coming to the front desk saying, hey, I heard there's a black midwife here. I want to be on her schedule. And it clicked to me that the years of, you know, mistrust, worried about how they're going to be, you know, not comfortable and being and how they're going to be treated. It really started to make me think, Okay, this is going to be the ticket. They need to see people that look like them. They need to also feel like they're not being judged. I make sure that, you know, I'm constantly encouraging folks to check their bias. Um, We know when we're being judged, you can feel it. Even if you don't say it, your actions, how you present information, folks can feel that. And so I'm dealing with a population that's chronically stressed. We have to try to build in stress relief, coping mechanisms, and also behavioral health. And that right there is worth a million dollars. I firmly believe that it's the midwifery model with centering and with the care coordination that is going to be the answer to maternal mortality and infant mortality. Black folks need to see people that look like them taking care of them. But that doesn't mean a person that is not of color is not taking good care of them or can't take good care of them. What I'm asking for is if you aren't a person of color, to be aware of, you know, how you're presenting information. Is it culturally aware? Are you using trigger words? Are you harming this woman or somebody in her family with your interaction. That's what I'm asking for. Because the reality of it is, like, I can't just say tomorrow, all right, that's it. It's only going to be all Black midwives forever. We only make up 2%. And that's with CPMs and CNMs together. I think in CNMs, we're 5%. But like, I said 5%. (laughs) That's nothing. The issue of how to bring more midwives of color into the profession is really important and a huge topic, one we would like to address in more depth on another episode. But to give you a taste of the different paths midwives of color take to the profession, we talked to two student midwives while we were in Savannah, Georgia for ACNM's annual meeting last May. My name is Sunny Sarush. I'm a registered nurse and I also have a master's degree in public health. Uh, I live in New York City and I work at Planned Parenthood of New York City. I'm originally from California and I'm currently a midwifery student at Frontier Nursing University. Cool. Um, I'm Trixie Kyoko. I am a student nurse midwife at Frontier. I live in Brooklyn, work in Manhattan as an L&D nurse. Um, been doing that for six years now. Um, and yes. <laughs> yeah. Great. Yeah. I've always just like since I was little all I ever dreamed about doing was delivering babies and I kind of took a really roundabout way to get there because I also knew that I wanted to help people and like work in health disparities Um, so I actually ended up 
beginning with a public health education and then going to nursing and then kind of working in several fields of nursing and then I was just like what am I doing like I want to be a midwife like what am like I just I kind of had an aha moment and I was like I just need to you know start working as an RN in sexual health and reproductive health and then I just need to do midwifery. I need to just do it. So I did it. So I'm, I'm on my way. Um, and also, fun factoid, my grandmother um, was a midwife in Iran, where my family's from. Uh, I ever actually never knew her, um, but I wrote, because the reason that we're here, we uh, won a scholarship through our school, a diver- through the diversity program. I wrote about her. So I think it's always just like kind of been in my genetic makeup to do it. And then I finally just had the courage to actually take on the challenge and kind of do what I always knew I was meant to do. Um, so I didn't know that I wanted to be a midwife at all. Um, I knew I love sciences, so that's what I wanted to do. Um, I graduated with a bachelor's, didn't know what I was going to do with it, and ended up moving to Vermont for the love of my life, or was the love of my life. Um, <laughs> my baby daddy, no. Um, um, and there I was 24 and young, and I got pregnant, and I had an amazing, amazing home birth midwife who was just like the light of... of everything that happened during that time. And it was just like a really incredible experience. And that for me was like the beginning. Um, And after that, I started like devouring everything about midwives and midwifery and like all the different routes. Um, And there's plenty. Um, Yeah, there's a lot, yeah. And I I think for me personally, I just came away feeling like I needed to become a nurse midwife, um, just as a woman of color and just knowing that there's already a, a bunch of barriers in place. Um, I just wanted it like the easiest quote unquote route to doing what I wanted to do. Um, yeah, so I went to nursing school and moved to New York City to be an L&D nurse, which was a great, it's an amazing experience. Um, it's very challenging, but I've learned a lot and I feel very grounded in like the way I want to practice. And I feel like my experience in the hospital has really like informed just like my original passion like and what like we're doing as midwives is like the right thing and it's good and so yeah you know what i would say i would say this every single midwifery training program that has a midwifery student of color hold on to them like a precious diamond give them extra support make sure that they are getting what they need you know extra love extra attention like they need it they need it in order to survive and to get through. I mean, I've, I've talked to students who have been to clinical preceptorships where the patient has told the midwife, I don't want to ever be touched by her. Like this, this is 2018, you know? And so, yeah, I don't know. There are some powerful movements afoot led by black women and women of color who are claiming their voice and making themselves heard. The Black Mamas Matter Alliance is an advocacy group promoting Black women-led initiatives that address maternal health care disparities. Black Mamas Matter was born from a partnership with Sister Song, which is the country's largest organization dedicated to reproductive justice for women of color, and was founded 20 years ago, situating the concept of women's health care within the framework of human rights and birth justice theory. The first Black Maternal Health Conference was held this past December, a three-day conference hosted by Black Mamas Matter and dedicated entirely to discussions about Black maternal health. 
what I will tell you what has happened for me in the last three years is really getting more acquainted with more Black women-led initiatives. I'm going to create a shirt. It's going to say hashtag listen to Black women because we know what we need to do to help ourselves. And so um, there's a whole community that is growing amongst us. And it's not just midwives. There's, you know, nurses, reproductive justice, um, doulas, scientists, OBGYNs. Like there's, there's a whole community that is really starting to grow and kind of be more boisterous about, hey, listen, this system, it sucks and it's painful. And I think we've tried to play nice, not say anything, but it's time for us to say all the things and listen, because we can tell you there's a lot of things in our healthcare system that hurt Black women and that a lot of folks don't really see or get. Even my own stress of trying to be a manager, I can't tell you how many times I've been accused of making someone feel threatened. This is the thing. I'm a cream puff. I ain't going to hit nobody. <laughs> now, I'm very, I'm loud and I use my hands when I talk. It's cultural, but I would never hit anybody. But I have learned in my years to make sure whenever I have to have a conversation to lower my voice, to create more space, to make sure that I make strong eye contact, to be clear. And it's extremely frustrating interacting with folks who do not get that, you know? And so those are the things that I have to think about just to execute leadership. When you have people not of color trying to make events and decisions for people of color, there's always a disaster. There's always a disaster. Like your well-intended plan is like, it's, it's a mess. And so I want to appreciate the efforts, but I still struggle with just some of the basic things like common sense. So like, I think at MANA, you know, I don't know all the details, but I think the most recent MANA conference, there was an, an elder midwife who referred to herself as a granny midwife. And um, there were folks that got really, really upset. And there were just some folks that were like, what's the big deal? And I just, I cringed because I said, what do you mean what's the big deal? That is a huge title amongst our culture. The granny midwife wasn't just the person who just caught everybody's baby. She was the the big leader in the community. She was connected to all the families. It's a very important title. And you can't just throw it out there when, think about the eradication of the granny midwives and how they were kicked out with the introduction of the public health nurse. No discussion of the profession of midwifery would be complete without recognizing the history of African-American granny or grand midwives. In cultures all over the world, there are women who hold honored positions as midwife and caregiver. During slavery in the United States, the plantation midwives carried on this tradition, caring for women and families and acting as spiritual leaders in their communities. After emancipation, the grand midwives continued in this role, passing their skills on to daughters and other apprentices to carry on their work. In the early 1900s, parallel to the development of the discipline of obstetrics was the development of the public health nurse. 
Obstetricians and white public health nurses portrayed the granny midwives as unsafe and unsanitary and instituted racist regulations and training programs that eventually led to the end of granny midwives. Out of this public health nurse movement came the modern nurse midwife. Early nurse midwifery training programs were segregated and the American Association of Nurse Midwives, founded in 1928, did not allow black midwives as members. This is our history as midwives. If midwifery care is one key to ending these healthcare disparities, then we must be strong enough to have the hard conversations about racism within our own profession. Those of us out there are trying to connect more and connect more in a space that we're comfortable with. That's also a very new conversation. It's okay for us to hold space where we can feel 100% comfortable. And that space needs to be with folks that look like us. And so what I realized, there's always been this level of kind of resistance, resentment, whatever, kind of like maybe, like maybe somebody not of color is missing out on what we're doing over here. But for us, it's, it's to feel comfortable and to feel safe. I am hopeful that we're going to start making some changes. I hope that more Black women acquire more leadership roles, have the opportunity that I've gotten where, you know, I've been able to have more control over a program serving Black women to figure out, you know, the best ways to care for them. It's so much joy. I can't imagine doing anything else. I can't imagine working with any other population. I'm Emily Yaste. Thank you so much for listening to Episode 5 of Midwifing America. And special thanks to Ebony Marcel, Sunny Sarouche, and Trixie Kiyoko for their insight and expertise. Thanks also to my co-hosts, Katie Robbins, Kate Bowen, and Angie Chisholm for their visions for this episode. We at Midwifing America believe that we must face difficult topics with honest dialogue. Today's episode of Midwifing America was produced by Russell Choppa, with all original music by Russell Choppa. We're committed to open dialogue around women's health and maternity care. The views expressed by our guests do not necessarily reflect the views of Midwifing America. If you want to join our conversation, find us at midwifingamerica.com and at Midwifing America on Apple Podcasts, Instagram, and Facebook. This episode of Midwifing America was brought to you by the Oregon Affiliate of the American College of Nurse Midwives and with a grant from the Francis T. Thatcher Foundation. 